0: This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 63, entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in Matthew? Part 3 of 3. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. I appreciate you for joining us. Thank you so much. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I am your host. I just want to remind our listeners that you can access the Biblical Unitarian Podcast in a variety of ways. You can listen to it online at biblicalunitarianpodcast.podbean.com, and you may also listen to it on iTunes and on Spotify. We also have a Facebook group if you're interested in discussing our episodes Go to Facebook and search in the search bar for Biblical Unitarian Podcast and send a request. We'd be happy to have you. In our last two episodes, we have been exploring how the Gospel of Matthew describes Jesus as the Son of God. Is this a title referring to one who is Yahweh, or even who is a pre-existing figure from heaven? Thus far, Matthew has said nothing that would give his readers these indications. Instead, the Son of God appears to be the Jewish King of Israel, the anointed human being through whom God invests his rule and authority on earth. But the Son of God is not the second member of the Trinity or some sort of divine figure who came down from heaven. In this final episode, on Matthew's understanding of Son of God, we will look at how he regards Jesus vis-a-vis the Father in heaven. We will also look at Jesus' understanding of the day and the hour of the second coming and how Jesus' understanding or lack of understanding on that topic relates to his role as the Son of God. Furthermore, we will examine the trial of between Jesus and the high priest to see how the confession of Son of God was understood by the Jewish authorities. Lastly, we will round off Matthew's Gospel by looking at the three Son of God references surrounding the crucifixion. So let's go right on ahead and dig into the text. Our first point today is looking at the Son of God whose Father demands forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 35, Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That's Matthew 18 and verse 35. And connecting with Matthew 18 and verse 35, I also want to read Matthew 6 verses 14 through 15, where Jesus says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. So we have Matthew 6, verse 14 through 15, and Matthew 18, verse 35. These two passages deal with the same topic, the forgiveness which the Heavenly Father requires of his children. In Matthew 18, verse 35, Jesus defines the father in relationship to himself as, quote, my heavenly Father, end quote. In Matthew 6, verse 14 through 15, Jesus defines the Father as your heavenly Father, end quote. That is, the Father belonging to his disciples. In each case, anyone who has God as their Father is a son of God. So, Jesus' Father is God, making Jesus, understandably, the Son of God. If Jesus says, my heavenly father, and that means that Jesus functions as a son of God. If Jesus tells the disciples that they too have God as their father, that makes them out to be sons of God. A designation that was already stated in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, where Jesus says, you will be called sons of your father who is in heaven. By Jesus claiming that the Father is his Heavenly Father in the same manner that he described his followers as having the Father as their Heavenly Father, Jesus is grouping himself and demonstrating solidarity with his followers, who are also human beings. Remember, Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer that the Father to whom the disciples are to pray is our Father that is, the Father of Jesus and the Father of the disciples, further demonstrating solidarity between Jesus and the disciples, all of whom are human beings. In sum, when the Son of God calls God my Heavenly Father, he is making the Son of God out to be an obedient human being who forgives others, just like his disciples are obedient human beings who forgive. Our second point today is looking at the Son of God who does not know. We're looking at this passage in Matthew 24, verse 36, where Jesus himself says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. That's Matthew 24, verse 36. This passage, in my opinion, is one of the strongest pieces of evidence demonstrating the Son of God's relationship to the Father. Jesus himself openly admits that he is unaware, meaning he does not know the day or hour when he is going to return. He further explains what he means by his statement, not even the angels of heaven, as even the divine council of angels are not aware of this important fact. Jesus also lists himself, the Son of God, among those who do not know the day or the hour. But there is one person who does know, and Jesus says plainly that it is the Father alone. By using the word alone in connection with the Father, Jesus indicates that only one person, God the Father, Knows the day and the hour of Jesus' second coming, and not a single other person knows this fact. The Father alone means that He alone, all by Himself, knows this. This sort of clarification might seem to be overkill to some of you, but the amount of exegetical gymnastics that interpreters have had to attempt in order to suggest that Jesus actually, deep down, really did know the day and the hour. Is ridiculous. There are even some ancient scribal copyists of Matthew's gospel who removed the reference, nor the Son, from the Greek manuscripts to alter the text from saying what it is obviously stating about the Son of God's ignorance. Although the phrase, the Father alone, is still clear that only the Father knows, thus excluding anybody else. Several older versions of the Bible record the tampered version of Matthew 24, verse 36, the versions that would remove the reference, quote, nor the Son, from the text, such as the King James Version and the New King James Version. Now, this has been fixed by all modern versions that have recognized that the oldest manuscripts do indeed contain the reference of the Son of God's ignorance to the day and the hour, In Matthew 24 and verse 36, all versions except the NET, which is the only modern version that leaves out the reference, nor the Son, from this passage. Suffice it to say, Jesus, the Son of God, admits that he is not omniscient and that the Father's knowledge is greater than his. For the Son of God to acknowledge that the Father knows more than he does is to distinguish Jesus from Yahweh, rather than to identify him with the one true God. This passage, Matthew 24 and verse 36, is a strong reason why readers should abandon reading the King James Version, the New King James Version, and the modern version of the NET. Our third point today is looking at the Son of God on trial. This passage here in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 63, says, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat on his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hits you? That's Matthew 26, verses 63 through 68. It is important to follow closely the narrative of this event to see how the argument develops. The high priest begins by asking Jesus if he is the Christ, the Son of God. This, of course, the reader of Matthew already knows, is the correct identification of Jesus, since Simon Peter already made the same confession in Matthew 16 and verse 16, where Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In both the confession of Peter and the question asked by the high priest, Son of God is clearly a title that is synonymous with Christ, the anointed king, God's anointed king. This is the question the high priest wanted to ask Jesus. Was he the royal Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah? Jesus goes on to affirm the question supplementing the answer with a combined quote from Psalm 110 and verse 1 and Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Not only is Jesus the royal and messianic Son of God, but he will also be vindicated to God's right hand and serve as the role of the Son of Man. Being exalted to God's right hand surely is an exalted thing to say of the human Son of God, But the citation also serves to distinguish Jesus from Yahweh, the initial Lord of Psalm 110 and verse 1. In Psalm 110 verse 1, it says that Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So Jesus here is that second Lord, the exalted Lord, the one that's exalted to Yahweh's right hand. And thus, Jesus is distinguished from Yahweh. The reference to Daniel 7 and verse 13 regards the fate of the Son of Man, a title already used of Jesus throughout Matthew's Gospel. The basic sense of this title of the Son of Man is one who is human rather than divine. In fact, the Son of Man is a distinguished figure in Daniel chapter 7 from the Ancient of Days, which is clearly a reference to God now the high priest and the council regard jesus answer as blasphemous some have suggested that they regarded jesus answer to be too exalted infringing upon the position reserved for god alone thus warranting the charge of blasphemy but there is nothing said about jesus that goes beyond the jewish expectation of an exalted human being three times jesus differentiates himself from god jesus is the son of god he is the one exalted to yahweh's right hand and he is the son of man who approaches the ancient of days he is not god he is not yahweh and he is not the ancient of days he is distinguished from god he is distinguished from yahweh he is distinguished from the ancient of days So the charge of blasphemy is not related to infringing upon God's unique position. I think that there are two factors at play here regarding the charge of blasphemy that seem to make the most sense. First, the Jewish authorities did not regard Jesus as the true Messiah, meaning Jesus was considered by them as a messianic pretender. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has redefined the Messianic expectation as a Messiah who serves others, who ushers in the reign of God already, and ultimately is a Messiah who will be rejected and killed. This was not the sort of Messiah that the Jewish people expected to be the one through whom God would vindicate Israel from Roman rule. False Messianic claims were actually an affront upon God, the one who anointed the Messiah for his holy task. So to be claiming to be the Messiah when you aren't the Messiah is actually to be saying something in an unholy manner about God. Second, Jesus' reference to being the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 involves the Son of Man vindicated from the surrounding pagan beasts. In Daniel chapter 7 the pagan beast referred to Gentile nations but now it is Jesus who is surrounded by the high priest and by the members of the council indicating that Jesus is prophetically identifying them as the pagan beast who oppress the righteous son of man from this perspective the high priest and the council would regard Jesus as speaking ill of God's chosen high priest, and Jesus was therefore confronting a blasphemous affront to God himself. I think both of these reasons are better solutions as to why the charge of blasphemy was given than suggesting that Jesus was claiming to infringe upon God's unique position. These suggestions are confirmed after the charge of blasphemy is given and Jesus is struck and mocked with the question of who hits you, calling him Christ. Again, notice their mocking is not calling him God or calling him Yahweh or calling him the Ancient of Days. They mock him by calling him the Anointed King, the Christ. They're not mocking him for being some sort of divine figure. The mocking has to do with the messianic claim. A Messiah who presumably has the ability to prophesy and know who it is is hitting him. Our fourth point today is looking at the Son of God at his crucifixion. Read a couple passages here out of Matthew 27, starting in verse 39. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. That's Matthew 27, verses 39-43. through And I also want to skip ahead in the passage and look at verse 54, where it says, Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. That's Matthew 27, verse 54. Three times... The issue at hand is whether Jesus is the Son of God. This is the same sort of temptation that appeared in Matthew chapter 4 with the temptation in the desert by the devil. In this passage, here in Matthew 27, however, the temptation to Jesus regards the misunderstanding of the Jews that the Messiah would only be a conquering figure, not a conquered and crucified figure. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In other words, if you are the royal king, why are you being killed and suffering instead of dealing with these Romans who are crucifying you? The text goes on to validate the royal overtones of Son of God by calling him specifically the King of Israel. The kings of Israel, David, Solomon, and their dynasty were all human beings through whom Yahweh desired to rule. The crucifixion continues by further differentiating Jesus as Son of God from being God. Citing Psalm 22, where King David was vindicated from death by Yahweh, the crowds further mocked Jesus, saying, in a quote from Psalm 22, he trusts in God, let God rescue him, end quote. God here is clearly one who is differentiated from Jesus, the Son of God, whom the crowds continue to mock Jesus as. Son of God, therefore, in the eyes of the mockers, is one whom God would rescue, and one who would trust in God. The Son of God and God are not one and the same. Finally, the Roman centurion, witnessing the events surrounding Jesus' death, confesses that Jesus was the Son of God. The Gentile making the confession serves Matthew's overall purpose that the Jewish Messiah would go beyond the Jewish people and ultimately impact the wider Gentile world. But the centurion's confession surely forced him to redefine his Roman category of son of God and for the Romans the son of God was none other than the Roman Emperor in the Roman system of hierarchy the current Emperor was adopted by the gods as the human ruler of the Empire this fits well with the high human Christology demonstrated in Matthew's Gospel wherein the human Messiah is empowered and invested with God's authority to rule. Although exalted things were certainly said of the various Roman emperors, no Jew thought that the Roman Son of God was a divine figure from heaven, or that the Roman emperor was the Jewish God, Yahweh. The Roman centurion, with his confession, is shifting his understanding from the imperial Son of God, in the Roman sense, to Jesus as the Jewish Son of God, a Messiah that had to die as part of his vocation. This understanding, the understanding that takes into account the Messiah's death, is an understanding that even Peter didn't fully grasp in his confession back in Matthew 16 and verse 16. Remember that Peter gave that climactic confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But when Jesus goes on to admit that he is going to be a rejected, suffering, and killed figure, this was not something that Peter understood or accepted. To fully understand the Son of God, therefore, is to understand his messianic role to die. And Yahweh is immortal and is thus incapable of dying. So the Son of God is a mortal figure distinguished from Yahweh. In conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of Matthew continually describes Jesus as Son of God in a manner that is consistent with a high human Christology. As Son of God, Jesus regards God as someone other than himself, being the Heavenly Father. The Heavenly Father of Jesus is also the Father of his disciples, who are also called sons of God. As the royal Son of God, Jesus admits that he is not omniscient, noting that the Father alone knows the day and the hour of the second coming. Before the Jewish authorities, Jesus' role as Son of God is clarified that he will be one exalted to God's right hand, and vindicated as the messianic human being the son of man of course the royal son of god has to be a rejected and killed figure meaning he is mortal like all other human beings in some matthew son of god is not yahweh but rather matthew son of god is the jewish human king the king that is destined to both rule over and die for the human race now next week we will begin to look at the tricky but important question as to what the gospel of john means with the title son of god so please look forward to those episodes by subscribing so you don't miss them coming out and if you think that this podcast might speak some truth into the lives of your friends or family be sure to share it with them and if you enjoyed the biblical unitarian podcast Please consider supporting us with a small donation. You can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, my name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.